EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 4th and I talk to Esther de Lange, a member of the European Parliament from the Netherlands and the Vice Chair of the European People's Party Group. Hi, I'm uh, Estel de Lange. I'm a member of the European Parliament, uh, Vice President of the European People's Party, which is the biggest political group uh, in the European Parliament, and I come from Holland. Welcome to the USA. What is the future emerging in Europe? Wow, that's really uh, <laughs> one of the uh, you know most difficult questions uh, to answer. Uh, Europe is not going through an easy phase at the moment. Uh, we've seen for the first time a country voting to leave uh, the EU. Uh, it seems that the attractiveness of the EU is um, uh, higher among countries that are not a member that, uh, than uh, among countries that are members. Um, we see uh, the rise of um, uh, extreme left and extreme right parties parties that are nationalistic in nature and don't really um, have a very um, well favorable attitude towards uh, cooperation across borders and this is what, what Europe does cooperation across borders um, on the other hand um, we also see that uh, a lot of issues and challenges that we face at the moment in the Netherlands in France in Poland anywhere uh, uh, on the continent uh, of Europe are uh, too big for us to deal with on our own. Uh, if you look at the migration crisis, uh, climate, competitiveness and the economy, um, we stand stronger together. Um, so there is a, still a reason uh, to cooperate in, uh, in Europe. And the big question is, we need a different Europe in the 21st century than we did in the 1950s and 60s. And the big question is, is Europe able to reinvent itself in a sort? You just said we need a different kind of Europe. So what kind of Europe? Well, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, Europe was all about making sure that France and Germany would not start another war. And the way we decided, to, or our, our, you know, the, the early uh, leaders of Europe decided to do that was, was via economic cooperation. But economic cooperation was never an end goal. The reasoning behind it was if you trade, you don't fight. And that was a very successful agenda for a long, long time. But it was very inward looking. It was looking at France, it was looking at Germany, it was looking at ourselves. Um, and again, after the fall of the wall, it was looking at ourselves. How do we organize this new, no longer divided Europe? Um, I would say that in the 21st century, the uh, debate is much more about the place that Europe holds in the world. It's, about, it's much more about global issues and the role that Europe has to play on climate, on migration. A lot of it has to do with demography. We're an aging population. Uh, Africa has very young, growing populations. Um, Europe is still very rich and attractive, um, economically strong. So a lot of people want to come. Not everybody can. How shall we organize that? Um, so the new Europe that we need is a Europe that finds an answer to these questions, which are much more global in nature than before. What role do you think will European identity or the 
reinvention of European identity play in building this kind of Europe? European identity has always been a very, very tricky uh, question ever since the beginning of European cooperation. Um, a lot of people, uh, especially nowadays in, 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 in this difficult period where uh, international cooperation is not seen as favorable by many people, um, many people see uh, a European identity and a national identity to be mutually exclusive. Um, I don't think they are. I think uh, you're perfectly capable of being Dutch and European at the same time. Uh, and actually, if I look at my the country that I come from, most uh, people would not even call themselves Dutch, but they would give their regional identity, you know, as their first uh, identity. Um, but to most Europeans, they will only feel European when they come to the US or when they actually leave Europe. And most of them don't. So to them, um, a European identity might be something that they haven't given much thought to. Uh, but there is one. Uh, we share a lot of the same values uh, that the Americans hold very, very dear. Um, we have different traditions, though. So there is there are elements of a European identity. But I think you can convince people much more of the importance of Europe, not by talking about identity, but also by talking about um, um, the fact that a lot of the challenges in the world, a small country like the Netherlands or even a big country like Germany cannot face on their own anymore. Um, and geo geopolitical arguments are becoming stronger and stronger. Um, uh, when the wall fell in 1989, I think a lot of Europeans and a lot of Americans maybe also thought we would all now go into a road to you know, uh, uh, a happy world and the end of history and everybody moving towards a liberal uh, democracy. And we see that this is not the case. We see what's happening in Russia. We see an aggressive Putin. We see um, Putin land grabbing parts of, uh, of Ukraine. So I think um, the harshness of uh, <laughs> uh, international uh, affairs is, is coming back to the forefront. Uh, there's a ring of fire around Europe. So it's very, very clear that we're not all moving to a happy liberal uh, democracy future in uh, any time soon. Um, and this threat uh, shows people that we need to stand united rather than let others divide and conquer. I'm happy you've talked a little bit about the Netherlands. Uh, we know that election is coming up and everybody is for it. I mean, given the rise of uh, nationalism and populism across Europe, people are, are worried. What's your opinion about the upcoming election in the Netherlands? And uh, do you see there is a threat that a uh, far-right party is actually going to win? Well, you see that these national elections, unlike European elections, are very much about national identity and what it is to be Dutch and whether we can still be Dutch in a very globalized world. Um, and if I might take a detour uh, to Europe, um, uh, a lot of uh, politicians on the extreme left and the extreme right would say that Europe is a threat to our national identity. Whereas I would say if we want to keep our identity as Dutch people, but also as Europeans, we actually need Europe uh, because we can't really guarantee that we are heard in the world just as Dutch 
500 million Europeans, yes, we can. Um, so um, these elections uh, will be very much about identity. They will also be very much uh, about the middle class and very much about um, can we go at it alone, close the borders for migration, keep our economy going uh, without trade deals, etc.? Or do we need others to be stronger and more in control? That's a big paradox. I'm saying here that we need Europe, we need others to have more control. Whereas the, um, uh, the discourse of the extremists is get rid of Europe in order to get back control. We've seen that uh, in America as well. Taking back control was a very strong uh, call uh, for the um, uh, Trump campaign also. But how much control can you have as a country of 17 million uh, inhabitants in order to have control and influence uh, in a world that is very globalized? You need to, you need to stand together and unite it. The popular discourse is that European institutions are far from people, are far from its citizens. And how, what do you think, how can the European Union actually get closer to its citizens? And kind of a follow-up question would be, um, what do you think European citizens actually can do to shape the future of Europe hmm. beyond going to elections and voting? Yes. Um, what Europe can do to be closer to citizens, um, it's, it, it, the problem is always that European politics takes place at two levels. So yes, you mentioned the European institutions, that's the EU level, um, but there's also the national level and national politics has become European politics. If I look at the Dutch election campaign, a lot of the issues that are being debated, some of them are national, like healthcare, like same uh, as here in the US, but others are very much European or international, climate, uh, the economy, migration. Um, so um, the answer to your question should also be uh, a two-level two uh, answer, so to say. Uh, in, at the European level, what the European institutions need to do is uh, focus more on the big issues uh, that are relevant in the 21st century and maybe less on the nitty-gritty detail that we've seen in the past. On the national level, I would expect uh, honest leadership from national leaders. And we see that this is lacking sometimes. They come to Brussels, they sound European, they go back to their national capitals and they, they have kind of forgotten what they agreed uh, in a European meeting or they actually say the exact, exact opposite of what they say in Brussels. So this is also very much a matter of leadership. Um, are you strong enough, big enough as a national leader to say this is something I need to fix together with my colleagues? Question mark. I'll, I'll leave that one hanging <laughs> a bit there uh, because a lot of leaders nowadays are not. Sorry, and the second question was, was about, about the citizens. Um, yeah. Um, the citizens, of course, just going to vote once every five years in their votes for the European Parliament um, is, is not enough. Um, we need to organize uh, a more active form of, um, uh, a more active form of uh, democracy. Uh, more and more people are withdrawing from politics and democracy, so the question is how do you get them to re-engage again? There are some interesting ideas to say, and this already happens at a local level, to say, okay, in your city council, we just randomly pick 
10, 20, 30 people that we invite for a meeting and that can speak with the representatives of the city council and of local politics. Why don't we do the same thing uh, in Europe? Uh, just directly engage with citizens in those kind of town hall meetings, but then at a European uh, level. Some say that uh, referenda are the answer. Um, I'm a bit um, hesitant there. I, I belong to a party in the Netherlands that uh, highly values representative democracy. Uh, so uh, referenda, like we see uh, in case of Brexit, uh, or on other issues uh, in the Netherlands on the association agreement with Ukraine can be, if used wrong, very counterproductive uh, to democracy and to European cooperation, especially when it's done as an alternative uh, to representative uh, democracy. When uh, Nigel Farage, the leader of the Leave campaign in Brexit, was confronted with the fact that uh, the parliament at Westminster in London needed to have a say in the process about how to disengage from Europe, how to trigger Article 50. He was very much against this. So he and, and, and England has one of the, or the United Kingdom has one of the oldest parliament in the world. They kind of invented, invented um, representative democracy. So seeing Nigel Farage say, okay, the parliament shouldn't have a say at all, I find very, very dangerous. That being said, we need to find other ways than just the elections uh, to engage with citizens. And I mentioned one, but I'm open for any other <laughs> thought that there might be. And of course, citizens of the EU have a very important role to play also in um, shaping um, the message of their national representatives. It's not only the European Parliament, it's also the mandate that the national parliament sends a minister, uh, you know, gives to a minister to take to Brussels. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities through their local MPs uh, contacted contacting their European uh, MPs directly, uh, that they can have uh, influence. Um, but indeed, this is a permanent exercise that we need to permanently reshape if needed. And my question is about democracy. We, s we have been talking about the rise of nationalism, rise of nationalism. And do you think is, is, is this posing a threat to democracy across Europe? Uh, I think this um, is challenging uh, democracy all through the Western world um, because if we see that people are no longer interested in facts <laughs> uh, but just in tweets that they find representatives for uh, a representation to be a representation of their own feelings, um, somebody has said that instead of choosing leaders a lot of people in, in the current social media age are choosing followers when they choose politicians. And uh, I think this lack of leadership that I've already mentioned among some uh, prime ministers who sound European in Brussels and they're nationalistic at home. Um, so this threat to democracy is essentially also a lack uh, of leadership because by not showing leadership, we enable citizens to have this attitude of vo of electing followers rather than their leaders. You talked a little bit about my last question at the beginning <laughs> of the interview, but I want to kind of pose this question again as a closing, closing question. What kind of future would you like to see in Europe? 
your your vision yeah the vision that i would have for europe is um there's basically two choices uh and the first one is definitely not mine i had a a, a colleague in my early years in the European Parliament. Unfortunately, he passed away, but I learned a lot from him. And he used to be prime minister of Belgium. And he said, who do we want to be? Uh, you know, us old continent Europe with an aging population. Are we going to be some kind of a beautiful, beautiful museum where the Chinese and Brazilians and, you know, Russians and Americans are going to come and visit? and see how lovely it once was and then leave? Uh, or do we want to find a way, um, despite our aging population um, and maybe uh, our, despite our decreasing um, share of world population, so actually Europe is going to be relatively smaller on a global scale, do we want to be uh, able to actually, um, if you don't want to be, if you don't want to be a follower you know, uh, I'm one meter 60, you know, so in the Netherlands, that's extremely short. Um, I'm <laughs> in meetings, always one of the shortest persons. And we have a saying that is, if you're not tall, you just have to be very, very smart. And I think this is the uh, this is the Europe I would like to see uh, the Europe that is not big but smart, that doesn't go for quantity, but that goes for quality, quality of life as well. It's a debate about um, measuring wealth in a different way than just your GDP. But most importantly, um, being smart, not demanding that everybody holds, uh, you know, three degrees, including one from Harvard or, the, <laughs> uh, or Boston or whatever, uh, Boston University, um, three uh, master's degrees uh, I don't need from every European citizen, but being smart in terms of finding answers to the challenges that really matter. Are we going to um, fight for the last uh, natural resources or are we going to be the smart guys that reuse and recycle and find the smartest answers to the fact that a lot of our uh, natural resources are finite? Uh, are we going to fight for shale gas with you guys in America, or are we going to be able to, um, you know, come up with uh, renewable solutions that not only do the climate a favor, but also keep employment uh, in the EU? Um, let's go for the smart option. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 